This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So, mates, plenty to discuss on this Tuesday, including the state that is doing something to help close the cases of missing and murdered women and the government agency that's actually handing out discrimination payments. Want to welcome you to Fox Soul's Black Report. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nicordelai Corte. Plus, one major city is suing the Winans family and the latest talk about who the new owners of the BET network could be. They're the stories that impact our people. It's our news, our views, and our voice topping our conversation today. We begin with breaking and some very scary news as the FBI is searching for four U.S. citizens who were kidnapped in Mexico. Reports say uh, a gunman fired at Americans shortly after they crossed the border as they were caught in between gang fire. That's right. Two Americans have been found dead and two others alive. Fox's William Lajanese has the story. We are closely following the assault and kidnapping of four U.S. citizens uh, in Matamorosa, Mexico. Uh, these sorts of attacks are unacceptable. Four Americans kidnapped at gunpoint shortly after crossing into Mexico from Brownsville, Texas on Friday. It happened in the northern Mexican border city of Matamoros. According to the FBI, the group was driving a white minivan with North Carolina plates when they came under gunfire from a group of armed men. They were later dragged out of the van and pushed into a waiting car that fled the scene. The information we have is that they crossed the border to buy medicine in Mexico and there was a confrontation between groups and they were detained. Mexico's president has indicated this may be a case of mistaken identity and the group unintentionally was targeted. The FBI working very closely um, with other federal partners and Mexican law enforcement agencies uh, to investigate this. Matamoros is part of the Tamaulipas state, an area that is home to warring factions of the Gulf drug cartel. It's also one of six Mexican states Americans are warned not to travel by the State Department due to violent crime and kidnappings. The travel advisory for uh, Tamaulipas state remains at level four. Do not travel. Uh, we encourage Americans to heed that. Absolutely terrible. I mean, you know, uh, there are a lot of folks uh, from all different parts of the country mm -hmm. that, you know, go to Mexico on a routine basis. Mm -hmm. Spring break is just right around the corner. A lot of mm -hmm. folks uh, go to Mexico for spring break. Uh, you've got to absolutely con consult the State Department's website uh, because right now, as they mentioned in the piece, mm. there's a do not travel order. Um, you know, and the president of Mexico said at a news conference, and Americans, you know, come to Mexico all the time to buy medicine. It's a pretty common practice. Mm -hmm. Especially for folks that live on those uh, on the on the border states, uh, where where they know that medicine can be a lot cheaper in Mexico, um, we've certainly talked about and reported on the drug cartels mm -hmm. um, and the danger that they pose. Uh, this is just the latest example of the risk that people run by visiting certain parts of Mexico. Yeah, we know this is still breaking news, so some of the details are a little inconsistent because in the report there we heard uh, they were crossing the border for medicinal purposes, maybe to pick up medicine. According to other reports, uh, the media has uh, gotten a hold of their family members. They say they were crossing the border for a cosmetic uh, procedure. So I'm sure those details will be confirmed as this story moves along. But absolutely horrific. When you look at the raw video, you see uh, a black woman uh, being escorted to the back of a pickup. And then you see two what appears to be unconscious black males being loaded into that pickup in the midst of all of the border uh, traffic uh, ongoing. And 
it is just scary, horrific. My prayer is that the family gets answers, justice, and that the government stay on top of this. Yeah, and I, and I know one of the family members had shared that one of the, the young men mm -hmm. uh, that was a part of the group really didn't want to go, mm -hmm. kind of felt uneasy about going, wasn't mm -hmm. so sure how safe it would be. And so uh, for for him to have had that, that feeling, that intuition that had gone off, and for this to be happening um, is absolutely terrible. Yeah, according to reports, two uh, are dead, and they're searching uh, for two more. So we'll keep you posted on this story. Let's go to Dallas, where a newspaper reporter was fired after she tweeted bruh, as in B-U-B-R-U-H at the city's mayor. Megan Mangrum, a now former reporter for the Dallas Morning News, sent out what she thought was a harmless tweet to the mayor. His name is Eric Johnson after he slammed local and national media outlets for not reporting on the decrease in violent crime in the city. Mangrum, that reporter, responded bruh. National news is always going to chase the trend, cultivate relationships with quality local news and partnerships. That tweet has since been deleted. Ooh. I, I mean, I'm I'm surprised. I mean, I, I understand the tone of her of her tweet. Mm -hmm. Did she really deserve to lose her job over this? You know, it's it's a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of context. I think the tweet may have been inappropriate. I think the use of the word bruh is probably like an individual type thought thing. You know, if, if you if you thought she crossed the line, if you didn't, you know, I have white girlfriends. Am I wrong for if they approach me as sister, like, you know, S-I-S-T-A, you know, or do they have to keep it sister? Is it is it color based? Is was it a cultural thing? I don't know. I think the, the lines are kind of blurred in this situation. Obviously, her, her employers or maybe someone from the mayor's office, if not the mayor himself, thought it was inappropriate and now she's out of a job. Yeah, I think it's wrong. I don't think she should be out of out of her job. I mean, look, if the tone is wrong, if she, uh, you know, was disrespectful, she's out of line, mm -hmm. address that. But, you know, we live in a time where, you know, reporters, uh, you know, freedom of speech mm -hmm. is constantly being challenged. Um, and, you know, but yeah, bra she, is a little too friendly. And, and, and then in okay. that context, Context where she's addressing like a formal issue, the bruh but was a little informal. But she doesn't it's deserve to lose her job. She doesn't deserve to lose her job. Mm. I, 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 you know, I, I think they might have questioned it, the professionalism of it. All. Sure, absolutely, question the professionalism of it. You know, but mm -hmm. you know, for this journalist to lose her job mm -hmm. because you know she tweeted something, you know that you know, may have upset the mayor, may mm -hmm. have come off as disrespectful, you know, may have been tone deaf. Mm -hmm. um, she could be guilty of, of all of those things in the court of public opinion, but to lose her job, lose her livelihood over it, I think it's But an you might think it comes off a little condescending because if the mayor was white, would she have said, bruh? Or would, would she have said, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Whitey, <laughs> listen, Whitey. Well, you, you know, know, apparently that question came came up, and she and, and she said it was not intended to be, you know, race specific. It was not racially motivated, you know. And look, our soulmates can decide for themselves whether or not uh, it is. I'm just saying, you know, hold her accountable, but you know, don't take her job away. I don't think she deserved to lose her job. That's all, right. all I'm saying. Meanwhile, an Ohio police officer who shot and killed a black man as he lay in bed in his home last summer is no longer on the force. According to the department, Anderson is in bad standing because of the ongoing criminal and administrative investigations into Lewis's death. Now, the retirement comes weeks after Lewis, the Lewis family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Anderson and other Columbus police officers who attempted to serve an arrest warrant on Lewis back on August 30th, 2022. Now, Anderson's bad standing means after leaving the force, he cannot have a gun or his CPD badge. Hmm. Well, I mean, what do we always say? Water is wet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, water is wet. And, and that's pretty much all I have to say about this particular story. I mean, I, to, to me, what really stood out is the fact that somebody is dead. Mm -hmm. And this feels to me like a workaround. Mm -hmm. You know, so the worst case scenario is, okay, you know, you, you're, you're retired and you can't have a gun and you can't have a badge but somebody else is dead. It, it just seems to me that, that the, the actions on the part of uh, the police department in terms of holding him accountable are woefully lacking, mm -hmm. right? And yet again, you know, it doesn't feel like equal justice under the law, right? This black man's life is gone, yeah. you know, because of bad police work and uh, likely more than that, right? But this guy, 
just gets to walk away, gets to continue to live his life and spend his birthdays and holidays with his family. Mm -hmm. You know, but the only thing is, oh, he can't have a badge. He can't have his gun. Oh. And, 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 you know, it's the same argument. It's the same conversation. It's the same area of concern, unfortunately, from case to case, which hence, you know, you know, water is wet. And, and at some point, again, I, I take it back to humanity. When, when are you going to care? To your point, you know, this police officer's life continues and, and the family of this uh, victim has to continue to be in perpetual mourning of this life that has been lost. And so at what point do you care enough? Uh, you know, to make people or to bring justice and then for people to suffer full consequences and to be able to feel. You have to either feel your increase or your decrease, depending on whatever choices and decisions mm -hmm. you've made. So, uh, you know, there lies, you know, sort of kind of my take on it. Mm -hmm. All righty. A bill to protect people's health data passed the House and now it moves over to the Senate. House Bill 1155 bans the sale of health data shared with apps and websites. The sale of that data is not protected under HIPAA laws. Police make requests for social media user data to aid prosecution after a crime has been committed. Now, sometimes the crime is abortion and social apps like Facebook and Google are turning over user chat logs and search history. You heard me. Now, through data collected by online pharmacies, social media posts and users data requests from law enforcement for messages and search logs, cases for prosecution, can be built against women for seeking an abortion and records of it uh, has been happening since Roe uh, was overturned. Roe versus Wade was overturned. This is absolutely alarming and our soulmates uh, should be uh, beside themselves mm -hmm. that this is happening. You know, this is a fairly common practice and, you know, we really need Congress to come through and act on mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. right? The fact that, you know, just routine Google searches that we do, mm -hmm. you know, on a whole range of things related to you know, our health and wellness, the fact that uh, these social media companies, you know, can very easily turn them over to law enforcement, yeah. uh, you know, that can misinterpret and cherry pick things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and, and put that in cases before a court of law, that should be alarming the folks. So I, mean, I, I mean, this is about our fundamental right to privacy, you know, and, you know, I don't think anybody wants folks snooping around their, their search history uh, and, and being able to take that information into a court of law. But when we enter into social media, is that something that we sort of kind of sacrifice and give up? I mean, aspects of that, you're on these social platforms, you know what these companies and government agencies and organizations, you, you know they've been tracking us. I mean, you can Google search a pen to try to find the best pen and all of a sudden, you know, in your searches, you're getting, you know, advertisements about the best, you know, ink pen in the world. So you know that this tracking has been ongoing, even if you click no, don't track me, I'm not allowing it. And so so at what point do you just become more conscious and aware, maybe pull up a little bit or understand that when you search certain things, unfortunately, they, it can come back to haunt you. Yeah, I don't think we I wanna, think you just have to stay conscious because they are going to continue to do what they've been doing. I don't think we want to live in a country where our right to privacy is eroded. And, and to me, if Congress doesn't act on this, that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, it's one thing to say, OK, you know, I'm 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 on a social media platform mm -hmm. and there's a good chance that the information based upon what I click on and, and what I search, you know, that that may be collected. It's another thing when it's collected and now it's handed over to law enforcement. I agree. Right? You know, and, and these folks are able to cherry pick that, you know, and 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 you turn around and catch a case. But I think social media and privacy just don't don't go together. And you just have to keep that in mind if you're going to live some of your life on social media. I think there's some people that don't want those two things to go together, uh, our right to privacy and social media, but I think there's also a lot of voices, maybe even louder voices that are saying, you know what, we do want to have our social media and we want to have our right to privacy. And so we'll see what ends up in this bill mm -hmm. uh, and, and what's ultimately signed into law. I don't know if you can have it both ways. All right, we're going to move on here. A jury has awarded a mother and her two daughters more than $8 million in a case in which their attorneys say, say Alameda County Sheriff's deputies unlawfully searched and detained them. So the encounter happened back in 2019. It was captured on body cam video. The family was sitting in their car, which was rented. It was outside of Castro Valley Starbucks when Alameda County Sheriff's deputies approached him. Uh, the officers told them they were 
concerned about car burglaries. The deputies then placed them in handcuffs and detained them after demanding to see their ID. And we fast forward. And obviously there was something very unlawful about it. And this family is is collecting eight million. Well, deja vu. Uh, many years ago, when I was 18 years old, I was not too far away from Castro Valley in San Francisco. Mm. And something similar happened where, you know, police officers, SFPD officers pulled up, you know, and pulled out their guns. They thought me and my friend Jazz had, um, that we had had, had uh, matched the description of two black men mm. that had been burglarizing cars in the neighborhood. They handcuffed us, took our ID. Same thing. We just wow. didn't get eight million dollars. I was going to say, did you get your eight mil? <laughs> we did get eight million dollars for it. Uh, you know, uh, probably a lifetime of trauma associated with that. Sure. But but, but no settlement like that. That you like can't that. put a price tag on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though they are getting eight million dollars mm -hmm. uh, in a settlement, I always go back to this. What if they didn't settle? You know, what if they push this case forward? Might that lead to the kind of fundamental reforms that will lead to other folks not having that experience, in this case, in Castro Valley? Mm. Just saying. With just seven months until Louisiana's election for governor, the first prominent Democrat enters the race. Sean Wilson, the former Louisiana Transportation Secretary, announced Monday that he's running for governor uh, and Wilson, it's important to note, served as Transportation Secretary for seven years after being appointed by the current governor, John Bell Edwards. He retired from the position last week in preparation for his candidacy. During Wilson's tenure, the state invested nearly $5.5 billion in infrastructure projects consisting of more than 7,000 miles of improvement. All right, well, listen, let's go for it. I don't think Louisiana has had a black governor. We could use a bruh, B-R-U-H, <laughs> you know, in, in, in that seat. But of course, for me, you know, it, you, you want him to be qualified, you know, to make sure that he can hit on all the points. You know, there's a lot, when you talk about, you know, running a state, there's a lot of people to, to, to satisfy, a lot of, um, you know, olive branches and, and, and across the aisle you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to do. And my um, hope is that he's just prepared and and, and if he is the man to get that win, and, and the fact that he's a brother will be a plus, and maybe uh, Louisiana will be governed maybe in a different kind of way uh, with a win. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you know, good luck to him. I think we need more folks sort of stepping forward, yeah. you know, and running. But, you know, he seems to me to be, you know, extremely qualified. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm, know, if mm -hmm. he's running the state's, you know, transportation agency, that's nothing to snuff at, especially considering that, you know, under the Biden administration, there's been a historic investment in infrastructure across the country. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to be the point person on that and to also have the support of the current Democratic governor, uh, that doesn't hurt either. And so we'll continue to keep our eye on that. I don't know uh, if uh, perhaps uh, uh, Gary Chambers, who ran for Senate, remember the guy that, that was smoking the, the blunt in the, uh, oh, in, yeah. in the campaign ad? Uh -huh. I don't know uh, if he's going to throw his support behind him, but there may be a whole constituency right there you he know, can help to deliver. Louisiana likes to keep it real on the local, state, and, and, and government <laughs> level. All right, let's take a trip down memory lane for a second. Remember back in 2023, uh, 2013 rather, uh, when Obama filled out his 2013 NCAA tournament bracket. I remember because Michigan State was in that thing. Well, now, current day, it's worth a pretty penny. The bracket was now resurfaced, has now resurfaced, and is up for uh, sale at uh, Heritage Auctions and is expected to fetch $20,000 when the auction ends on March 25th. This is Obama's first bracket after his reelection uh, back in November of 2012, and it was a regular occurrence, and it was really a big to-do for Obama to fill out his brackets on TV and uh, it was scrutinized uh, by the public uh, each year. But I think if I'm not mistaken, back in 2013 and, and years thereafter, even after the president, he's he's done pretty well with his brackets. He keeps up on it. He's he's a basketball guy. You know, I mean, he's he's big. He's a big sports guy. Yeah. And and, you know, I think Michelle Obama said in a lot of interviews that uh, President Obama uh, you know, has sort of ESPN on a constant loop mm -hmm. in their house. And so, you know, he's a big sports fan and he's really good, you know, at uh, doing the brackets. And who knows, maybe he might become a special correspondent yeah. to Fox Hole's Black Report. Oh, okay. Well, he has, a, in the meanwhile, he got a great jump shot. <laughs> he does. Coming up, Fox Hole's uh, Black Report. Uh, we have an eye opening revelation about the impact of racism on black women's health. You don't say. Find out a possible connection between 
interpersonal racism, and heart disease. It's all coming up next. You're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. Welcome back to Fox Soul's Black Report. Well, it's been a long time coming, but now on the heels of an agency-wide plan to address inequity in the programs, the U.S. Department of Agriculture says it will distribute $2.2 billion to farmers who face discrimination by the agency by the end of this year. Yeah, so the Biden administration has pledged to prepare the USDA's fractured, I'd say broken, relationships with farmers of color. Now, last year, a study found that historical discrimination in the agency's lending programs contributed to black farmers losing, check this, 326 billion dollars worth of land in the 20th century. So talk about 40 acres and a mule, you, that amount, amounts to really nothing. Yeah. You might as yeah. well not have given us anything. <laughs> right. I mean, that's not even interest. That's, that's, not, even, that's not even an interest payment. Like, I mean, what? I mean, and, and, and this is what makes it so egregious to me. So there were a number of lawsuits that were filed, uh, mostly by Republican attorney generals, mm -hmm. um, and they, uh, really put the brakes on on this remedy to black farmers and farmers of color because mm -hmm. they felt like it discriminated against white farmers. Mm -hmm. they, they felt like it discriminated against women, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, it wasn't until the Inflation Reduction Act where mm -hmm. essentially uh, they repealed and replaced what they previously had passed uh, in order to, to, to make it possible for these farmers of color to get their money but it's not going exclusively to them. It's also opened it up uh, so that other economically distressed farmers uh, also get a bite at this. And so, you know, this is this is uh, a part of the challenge of being able to target remedies, uh, you know, to black folks. Mm -hmm. Right. The moment you say black, you know, you know, people say, well, what about the rest of us? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But when the focus is on, you know, everybody else, you know, ain't nobody really saying black. And so, you know, this is a great example of that. You know, we love a, a good hashtag. Black farmers matter. That's right. Yeah. They sure do. And speaking of black, uh, a black couple living in the San Francisco Bay Area, your neck of the woods, mm -hmm. uh, the city of Marin uh, have settled their claims against an appraiser they accused of racial discrimination for drastically lowballing their home value. So the appraiser, her name is Jeanette Miller, was hired by appraisal services company AMC Links to do the inspection. This was in January of 2020. Now the black couple claimed Miller valued their home at just under a million dollars, an amount their complaint calls, quote, erroneously low considering their home appraised for uh, $1.4 million back in 2019. That was right before the appraisal. Now the couple enlisted a white friend to stand in for them during a second appraisal, whitewashing their home to remove family photos and African art. The home then appraised for almost $1.5 million. Fast forward and this white appraiser now must compensate this couple this black couple uh, attend training and watch a documentary on preventing housing discrimination. She's got to watch a documentary, Nicole. She's got to watch a documentary, but she also got to pay up, you know, and the co-plaintiffs in this case were the Fair Housing Advocates of, of Northern California. Mm -hmm. uh, and they really say this is a dramatic example of what we've seen in the headlines time and time and time again, where we're seeing, you know, racial bias, racial discrimination mm -hmm. show up in the appraisal process. Mm -hmm. You know, they're no different from a lot of folks in our family and our communities, you know, that have been whitewashing, you know, for years before it was a thing. Mm -hmm. We talked about yesterday, black couples and, and these secret barriers when, when filing taxes, mm -hmm. you know, how the goalposts, you know, continues to move. We just talked about the black farmers, how them, you know, not being able to get what they've deserved to get or what they've been promised. It's just, it's just, it's just never ending. It's like at some point, you know, there has to be a point where we can get what is deserved or, or what it is we have earned without skin color yeah. always being the issue. And, the, and it almost comes off, and I said this yesterday, as demonic and evil mm -hmm. because it is so hidden yet so very deliberate. Yeah. yeah. And one of the good things that come out of this is that the Fair Housing Act mm -hmm. uh, can apply to appraisers and uh, both individual appraisers and appraiser companies, right? Mm -hmm. And so that hadn't always been clear. And so this is a win, not just for that couple in Marin, you know, but this is a, a big win, you know, for, for black uh, sellers uh, across the country.
Okay. You can't, you can't farm. You can't be a black farmer. You can't be a black homeowner. You can't be black and buy your taxes. You can, you can, you know, but just know it's going to come at a price. Mm. But meanwhile, new research suggests that interpersonal racism experienced through employment, housing, and interactions with police may increase the risk for heart disease in black women. The analysis showed no association between perceived racism in everyday life and heart health risk. However, women who reported experiencing racism related to employment, housing, and police interactions faced a 26%, a 26% um, higher risk of heart disease than those who said that they did not experience racism in those areas. I mean, that is a pretty big deal. It is, and, and there's so much to, to filter through here because, you know, when I read stories like this, it's just, it, it, there's, there's stretchers, stressors and, and triggers. And not only are we, you know, taking on, whether that be, you know, employment, whether that be, you know, in, in different fields and aspects, but it's, uh, for black women, it's, we're burying our sons too. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, whether it be by the hands of police violence or maybe black on black crime. Um, and that has to take a toll, you know, first and foremost, in my my opinion on the health of, of black women. We're burying our sons, we're burying mm. our fathers, we're burying our brothers. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's just stressful. It's just stressful. And I think it's it's cutting black women's lives short in addition to, you know, the other, uh, you know, aspects uh, listed in that particular article. Yeah. And there's a whole body of research around weathering, mm -hmm. uh, the weathering effect on minorities, mm -hmm. right? You know, the effects of racism sort of over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, you know, this research is is consistent with that. Um, you know, we know that, uh, you know, black folks have a heightened risk for all sorts of cardiovascular related diseases, right? You know, but we don't talk enough about, you know, the effects that, you know, having to contend with racism and racial bias and racial discrimination, among other forms of discrimination. If you're a black woman, it's not just, you know, discrimination based upon race, it's gender discrimination. Mm -hmm. If you're a black woman, it's also LGBTQ. My right? hair, how right? I wear my hair. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and so this is this is pretty serious stuff. And But you, you know, know what, Nicola, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything. And I mean, I w if I had a choice, I'd still be black. Yeah. I mean, I really would, even yeah. though it comes with so much. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm happy about who I am yeah. and, and what God chose me to be. Well, I'm really glad that the American Heart Association is doing this kind of research because mm -hmm. uh, you don't see these kind of uh, insights coming from them uh, this explicitly very often. Let's go to Iowa where the university has agreed to pay over $4 million to settle a civil rights lawsuit filed by 13 black student athletes who accuse the university's football coaches of racism and bullying. The U.S. District Judge called the athletes' allegations searing and said the case should move to trial on the remaining civil rights counts that were not dismissed. In addition to the settlement payment, the agreement also calls for implementation of a diversity plan in the university's athletics department and tuition support for uh, former athletes who have not completed their undergraduate education. The settlement will be paid from a combination of state general revenues and the athletics department. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I read this story, you know, um, and we, we oftentimes talk about the effects of the anti-black racism uh, in our schools mm -hmm. and on our campuses and how that affects learning environments. Well, these student athletes had to go out and perform on the field, on the court, uh, and in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And the things that they had to contend with, you know, being referred to, you know, uh, as the N-word, you know, by their coaches. You know, they said things like, you know, what gang, you know, is he in? Referring to mm -hmm. different black uh, athletes would, would, you know, diminish them by saying, you know, you know, you're really not all that smart at all, right? You know, are you about to go rob a liquor store? I mean, you know, some of the things that I read that were a part of what the U.S. District Court judge wrote, um, you know, really hurt my heart, and I'm sure it would hurt the heart of, of a lot more people that knew about it, right? And, you know, kudos to these young student athletes that had the courage 
to stand up, the 13 of them to stand up and, and to speak their truth and to call on this institution uh, to be held accountable. And by the way, this is not the first time. There have been several other uh, discrimination cases that have been brought against uh, the University of Iowa. And so, um, you know. I don't think, you know, I don't put any stock in the coaches changing. They're going to be who they're going to be, diversity changing, whatever. The only thing concrete I take away is give these young men and or women the money to complete their degree. I love that. So they can go out into the world and properly be the change. That's, that's, that's my takeaway from the story. Yeah, well, you know, hopefully uh, they will be the last people to have this experience. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Caucasian Student Group. This is this was the title of an invitation to a private email group received by more than 700 students at Elizabeth City State University Thursday that has caused controversy at the HBCU. The email from Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Inclusion noted that people who received the email were added to the identity group, quote, based on their admission demographic information. Now, hours after the email group was created, Elizabeth City State sent out another email to students ending it saying that while the groups were developed to, quote, create space, build community, and promote a sense of belonging within the ECSU student body, it would suspend the use of identity-based affinity email groups in order to get more feedback. Uh, what say you, Courtney Hayes? Well, you know, listen, you know, when you're at a uh, HBCU and you're white, you are technically the minority. So does the filter flip? And so th this, this, does that deem this to be appropriate and okay? Uh, on the other side of it, you know, we're still dealing what we're still dealing with as far as, you know, the fight for equality, the, the, the fight to be, you know, treated equal. And so I can see how this group reads, you know, as racist just in and of itself, you know, when you throw, you know, the white, you know, student, you know, group title on there. I don't know, I don't know what the fix is because, I mean, do the white students as a minority have a right to ban and group? No different from how we did it at Michigan State University being a predominantly white institution. You know, we had the Black Student Alliance. We had, you know, black caucuses in the different dorms to keep us uh, connected and together and on code and, and, and informed. I, I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And I know that campus is divided mm -hmm. on how to approach this. I think it all depends on how the decision is made. Mm -hmm. And I think the rollout of this, I think everybody would agree the rollout of this, you know, is probably a little messier than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even when people sort of check different boxes on their applications, I think that's one experience. They don't necessarily look to get an email that says, you know, welcome to the Caucasian students, right? I mean, there's something about that that just feels a little off in tone. Um, and so, you know, clearly the administration is going back to the drawing board on this um, after a number of students have, have called them out. But, you know, again, when there's any sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative that's being rolled out, you gotta engage, you know, the folks that, uh, you know, this is supposed to, to help to support, uh, because if not, you know, it could be uh, an absolute disaster and it looks like that's a part of what happened at Elizabeth City. Well, still ahead, a closer look at an unfinished church in Detroit and how the city is demanding answers after 20 years of construction. Yeah, you want to stick around for that story. Plus, the lawsuit filed by the city against the famous family behind it. Don't go anywhere. You're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. We'll return right after this short break. Welcome back, Soulmates, to Fox Soul's Black Report. Thanks for joining the conversation today. So listen, after 20 years of construction, the city of Detroit wants to know what it is going to take for perfecting church to finish the job. That's right. Now the city has filed a lawsuit forcing the famous family and church to respond. We get the latest from Fox 2 Detroit's Ingrid Kelly. <laughs> City of Detroit sending a clear message to perfecting church and its leader, Bishop Marvin Winans. 
Well, we did sue because we said this continues to be a nuisance, which has to be abated. The lawsuit filed last week, the city demanding the court take jurisdiction over the case involving this unfinished church at Seven Mile and Woodward, the future home of Perfecting Church, a church that has been under construction for decades after plans to build at this site were announced in 2003 by Bishop Winans, a member of the world-renowned gospel singing family, the Winans. They have not taken out a building permit to do any work on that church since 2018. We want a receiver to come in, take control of the project, and help us bring this thing to a close. The city says it's still waiting to receive a detailed status building report from the church, which was due two weeks ago. Fox 2 reached out to Bishop Winans and we received a statement which reads in part, we believed we are up to date in addressing all matters of concern posed by the city. We are shocked and extremely disappointed that the city would take this course of action in the dark of the night and in our opinion, not acting in good faith. But one local activist believes this lawsuit is about more than a church that remains unfinished. What is really happening here, I believe, is that that church is located right on the uh, line of sight to the, to the first PGA event ever held in Detroit, the Rocket Mortgage Classic. I believe they view it as an eyesore. The city rejecting that claim. We've had two rocket mortgages, and this thing has been standing there throughout each one of them. The church has three weeks to respond to the lawsuit. There's something wrong with this. Does God have a timetable? Hell no. If we are going to transform the blight that we all live with every single day, we've got to start somewhere. We're starting at Seven Mile and Woodward. In Detroit, Ingrid Kelly, Fox 2 News. Oh, I love past. I love Bishop White. You, the entire family. That that is Detroit. Detroit of the wine is mm -hmm. the wine is Detroit. But let me tell you, it's been 20 years, which is why I have to disagree uh, with the with the other gentlemen. You know, God might not have a timeline, but you know, residents do. It's it's not just the city. People in that community are tired of looking at. Could you imagine going up and down that block, uh, seeing that unfinished project and no movement on it? Um, I have to agree uh, with the city. It is time uh, for somebody to, to get some answers and to get that project moving, regardless of, of the PGA event, seven and what were prime, prime area. And, you know, you, you want to see something there that, that complements the city. It's been 20 years. You know, 20 years. And, and, and we are used to a building fund. <laughs> there are a lot of churches who have had building funds mm -hmm. that have been around for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, you've actually got to be building, yeah. <laughs> right? That's how it works. And you can't just have, you know, money for construction, but the construction is not happening. And so, you know, I think, you know, people deserve answers, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, if the church can't provide folks with answers, um, you know, freely, uh, then I think that's when you got to get yeah. the course And maybe involved. God doesn't have timing, but was it Pastor Winans' time to build that church? which could be impeding the process. Maybe it just wasn't his time or season to begin this project, which, why, which is why it hasn't been fulfilled. But I hope for the best. You know, I hope Perfecting can get their church up and running. I hope the city can get a, a nice building in that area. Or if that's not the, if that's not the um, solution, then, you know, maybe like the man said, somebody had to take over that project and see what else can be done with that building. It's an eyesore for sure, mm. in my opinion. All right, Dolores Williamston has made history in New Orleans as the first woman bishop of the Louisiana Conference of the United Methodist Church. Williamston's formal installation was held at Lawless Memorial Chapel on the campus of Dillard University. She seeks to be a shepherd of hope, she stated. Now the newly installed bishop will lead 410 United Methodist congregations with over 100,000 congregants. Her jurisdiction includes Kansas, Louisiana, Missouri, Nebraska, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and the good old state of Texas. Justice Katanji Brown Jackson was recently honored in her hometown of Cutler Bay, Florida. Mm. The new justice returned to the community she grew up in for the renaming of a street in her honor. Justice Brown Jackson was on hand for the naming ceremony in the Miami adjacent community. Jackson said, quotes, to have my name so prominently displayed on a street in the community that has given me so much, that is a very special honor. 
Justice Kataji Brown Jackson Street is located in Miami-Dade County and runs for about three quarters of a mile. Take How that, cool DeSantis. is take that? that? Take that, take that, take that, DeSantis, <laughs> take that. Just in time for Women's History Month. That's right. Uh, you know, what, what an honor. It's, it's amazing. And as you were reading the story, I was just thinking how, you know, Katanji Brown and I, Justice Katanji Brown, and I, we're, we're the same generation. So she, in fact, inspires me from that aspect. But, you know, for these little young brown girls to, to, to be born into a time when they see someone either like them or who looks like their mom or their aunt or their grandmother sitting at such, at such a high seat, mm -hmm. that is just so, so impactful. And um, I'm just excited about that legacy that, that, that she's going to continue to to leave uh, for little young brown black girls around the world. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of legacy, I mean, as somebody who has an uncommon African name, mm -hmm. I go back to this part of her confirmation hearing when she really leaned into that and really owned that. And um, to have to see, you know, this this accomplished mm -hmm. black woman mm -hmm. with this uncommon name now being celebrated in her hometown. There's a whole street that now has an uncommon name on it uh, that over time, I have a feeling will become more and more common. KBJ. That's right. You gotta love it. Well, today in her story, we highlight Jacqueline Stewart, the director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Under Stewart's guidance, the Academy Museum has launched numerous exhibitions, screenings, publications, workshops, youth programs, you name it. Her career has examined the histories of overlooked black filmmakers and black audiences, and she uses that passion to curate some of the most thought-provoking exhibitions at the museum. That's right. Stewart was raised on Chicago's South Side and graduated from Kenwood Academy okay. High School. Shout out Kenwood alum. <laughs> uh, she received her BA from Stanford University and uh, her um, PhD and uh, AM from uh, both uh, the University of Chicago. She is a noted and highly respected film scholar with extensive research on African-American film cultures. The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures is located in the Wilshire District of Los Angeles. And she is a sharp-looking lady. Congratulations mm -hmm. to her again, just in time for Women's History Month, all the accomplishments. And again, going back to the conversation uh, about uh, Justice Kataji Brown-Jackson, I mean, just for these young girls to get a look at women who, who have been doing it, are doing it, and will continue to do it, and then look like their aunt or look like their mom, you know. It's just, it's it's priceless. You can't, you cannot put a price on that type of influence and that type of representation. And it's also another reminder that the folks like Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, and the woman at the Motion Picture Academy that we just mentioned Mr. here, uh, that they are history in the making. That's right. So for for the movement out there that's trying to erase black history, mm. right, you know, uh, I can only imagine what uh, Ron DeSantis and his ilk in Florida feel about Katanji having, you know, a street, a street named, named after, after her, her, right? <laughs> you know, and, and it's got to make you wonder, like, would that end up in the history books in Florida? Is that something that they would look to, to erase? Well, not on our watch. Up next, from Hollywood to royalty, these powerful black women have been dominating the headlines all year long. Yep, we'll tell you who made the 10, the top 10 most Googled list of 2022. Stay tuned. You're watching Fox Soul's Black Report. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, Tyler Perry, a longtime partner of Black Entertainment Television. Yeah, he's in talks to potentially take ownership of the network through a purchase of parent company Paramount Global's majority stake. Sources report that Paramount is considering selling a majority stake in the BET business with Perry as a potential buyer. BET was the first cable network catering to black audiences nationwide and was acquired by Paramount in 2000 for $2.3 billion. Now, if the deal goes through, Perry would become the owner of the network that airs many of his shows. And as of late, Byron Allen has been tossed into that conversation 
as well. So, so there might be a little, you know, fisticuff as to who might get it. Word on the street was I, I was hearing that Tyler Perry wasn't as interested yeah. as this article um, kind of makes him out to be. So we'll see, you know, what comes of that. I, I think as we like to say, at the end of the day, it looks like there'll be black ownership between uh, Perry and, and Byron Allen. Well, at least the potential of that. Yes. And, and by the way, and these are just the, the folks that we know about that, 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 that have been t uh, spoken to um, about a potentially potentially buying mm -hmm. uh, BET, you know, but, you know, cheers to Tyler Perry. That's I right. mean, you know, to go from being on the Chitlin circuit, right, uh, and, you know, delivering play after play after play, he has really figured out how to monetize his gift. Uh, and, you know, he has gone from the Chitlin circuit to, you know, major movies, major awards, and now to be, you know, uh, in the running to potentially uh, become the owner of black entertainment television. Mm -hmm. um, what a career journey. Indeed. Yeah. All right, Milwaukee Bucks superstar Giannis Antetokounmpo. Did I do it good enough? I think That's so. That's a tongue twister, baby. <laughs> has added another achievement to his list, becoming a minority owner of the Major League Soccer team in Nashville. Uh, ESPN reports that Nashville Predators forward Felipe Forsberg and Giannis's three brothers are also minority owners. The family has a history with soccer as their father and another brother. So a lot of them boys. Uh, played professionally, Giannis has always dreamed of owning a soccer team and the opportunity to invest in the Nashville uh, SC was too good to pass up. The team's commitment to uplifting their community is also in alignment with his family's values. Just one of the good guys in the NBA. He's because of that, he's become the face of the NBA. And I just like I just like the way he's postured himself. Yeah. You know, yeah. on and off the court. And I just love, you know, how so many of of our folks have their eye on the prize, which is ownership, mm. right? This is something that we don't see in the NFL, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it doesn't mean that we're not looking for it in other places. And so whether it's Tyler Perry looking at the ownership of BET or whether, mm -hmm. you know, it's this gentleman looking at the, own, the ownership of this team, mm -hmm. you know, ownership is where it's at. That's how we're going to be able to uh, really uh, disrupt the racial wealth gap in this country mm -hmm. uh, and really be able to accelerate the kind of change we want to see. And besides that, he is a bad Bad, bad dude on that court. I just want him to stay healthy. Well, you know who else is look. you know who else is a baddie? Hmm. Zendaya. Oh. Uh-huh. Zendaya, she takes the lead as the number one most Googled African American woman of 2022. This is according to a recent analysis of search data. Hmm. Now, alongside her, Serena Williams, Meghan Merkel, Beyonce, Michelle Obama, Jada Pinkett Smith. Oprah Winfrey, Nicki Minaj, Cardi B, and Whoopi Goldberg round wow. out the top 10. Okay. These women have been in the news for a variety of reasons, from career accomplishments uh, to personal milestones. And Where's so, Angela? Where's Viola? It doesn't What's mean happening that, doesn't mean they're not on the list. They just That's didn't make top true. 10. But it's as, as, as big as their careers have been within the last you know, mm -hmm. or, or what has happened within the last maybe year or months or so, you would think they'd be in there with all of their great wins and accomplishments and movies and stuff. I'm yeah. thinking top 10 for them. I at least in my top 10. I was initially surprised that Zendaya made number one, but then I sort of paused and thought about it and hmm. said, well, maybe she's number one because a lot of people may not know who she is. And so maybe they've like seen her in a magazine or they've seen her on a show mm. and maybe they're Googling to learn more about her. And so sometimes we assume, you know, that you know these folks are Googled because you know they're big superstars and everybody yeah. knows who they are. I'm, I'm actually not surprised she's number one because you know she she is out there, but we don't know her the same way we know like. Well, I, I would disagree. I think she's been the it girl uh, for a very long time, and so I think you know the Google uh, search is because people are wanting to know more about her because she has become that chick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or becoming. As Michelle Obama would well, say. Well, according to that list, she is the <laughs> chick. All right, Lionel Richie and Earth, Wind and Fire are teaming up for the Sing a Song All Night Long Tour. That is dope. Uh, this summer it's happening, and Richie announced the news in a video posted on IG. The tour has been a long time coming for Richie, who rose to fame back in the 1970s as a songwriter and co-leader of the Motown group, the Commodores. What up, Tuskegee? <laughs> you would, sometimes you would never know Lionel Richie's from the deep south. All right. 
right, the tour's opening night will be on August 4th in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Soulmates, and will end on September 15th in LA. Plenty of Soulmates there as well. Tickets go on sale March 13th. So I'm over here. I'm already. You ready? You're I'm already all, ready? I'm already doing the dance. I'm already yeah. getting ready. You know that that concert is going to be hot. Mm -hmm. It's going to be one of the hottest tickets. I mean, how many Lionel Richie songs have we grown up to? Mm -hmm. How many Earth, Wind & Fire songs have we grown up to? Mm -hmm. You know, my very first concert ever was at the Concord Pavilion in the Bay Area. And it was during like Sinbad's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, festival, some sort of festival he did, uh, where Earth, Wind & Fire uh, were the main musical wow. act. And so that was my first concert ever. Wow. And so you better believe I'm going to find one of those cities mm. and I'm going to check out I'm that concert. I'm hoping some of the Commodores will come out and surprise. I don't know if they've, they've kissed and made up, but they were such, a, they were such incredible hits. I'm yeah. hoping that, that maybe, you know, they've kind of made up and maybe the Commodores will come out on stage with Lionel and do some, do some of those classic 70s hits. It's possible. It's possible. Mm -hmm. it's possible. But that, that's going to be a good time. And so, yeah, I agree. and so, so, so save, save your dollars because it, it ain't gonna be cheap. Hopefully, hopefully it's not Beyonce Renaissance kind of money. I don't think so. Mm. Well, still ahead, a new skincare brand is taking the beauty world by storm, and it's not just for adults. We got the story on this dynamic duel on a mission to develop healthy skincare habits for youngins. It's all up next on Fox Souls Black Report. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, Cheryl Brown and her eight-year-old granddaughter, Sky, are the founders of Sky Monroe Skincare, a black-owned brand described as the best natural skincare for kids on the market. Okay, the company provides quality beauty products to help kids, teens, and tweens develop good skincare habits, as many skincare companies only focus mostly on adults. Now, Sky Monroe Skincare is looking to change the narrative with beauty solutions that don't contain harmful chemicals and will help make children feel beautiful, confident, and healthy. Brown was inspired by her granddaughter to launch the brand after refusing to use her adult skincare on her delicate skin as they spent time together during the mm. pandemic. Now, her background in the childcare business and years of experience working at a skincare company fueled her passion to create the Sky Monroe brand. So you mean the days of saying, uh, come here, come here, <laughs> that, that's right, over? Right. <laughs> that is over, because you know, that that will work, that will work for eternity. Or putting, or putting Vaseline <laughs> on, on kids' faces. I ain't gonna call out any of my family members uh -oh. who, who may be watching, but I'm just saying, we weren't the only ones. But when you think about what young people are born into and what they're exposed to, when you talk about social media and all mm -hmm. the imagery and use this and use that, I think it makes sense to kind of streamline that and say, hey, here's a product that you can use. You know, there's nothing over-sexualized about mm -hmm. it. There's nothing that in it that's going to tear up your young, supple, beautiful skin. And, and it's for you to, you know, kind of create those habits to, to think and feel good about yourself. So maybe those influences you know, as they matriculate and get older, won't influence them in such a way to whereas they don't feel they have any self-worth or anything yeah. like that. That's the point of this particular product line, yeah. line I, I like. Because especially, you know, if you have skin issues, yeah. it really can't affect your confidence. It does. So it's really great to see this. It does, it yeah. does. Yeah. All right, for the full rundown on today's stories like this and more, you can access Fox Souls video on demand on any of our partners. You can even access past shows and other black-centered content. Don't forget to download the app. It's absolutely free, Soulmates. It's a Fox Soul app, and it's free. And it's what? It's free. <laughs> <laughs> Give us free. Give us free. <laughs> we Indeed. love it. Well, well, this has been great. Uh, we want to thank everybody for watching. I'm Nicole Delay Corte. I'm Courtney Hicks. Until next time, y'all. Stay lifted.